Uh, open your Bibles, John chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 48 where we uh, will finish actually the 8th chapter this week. We've been going through this for about the past 8 months now and finishing John chapter 8 this week and then we will move forward as we go verse by verse through the book. Now over the past few weeks as you're turning there, I remind you we've been following along with the declarations of Christ as he declared himself the, the true light of the world, the light through whom we can know truth and, through, and by whom all truth finds its source. And how any who will abide or continue and submit themselves to that word will be set free from the slavery of sin, as we saw last week. He is the true source of freedom, and He is the true source of truth. The last couple of weeks have been pretty challenging. as he, We've had to deal with whether or not we are believing the truth, and whether or not we are true disciples by examining ourselves according to the truth of the words that Christ spoke. This week, you get a little bit of relief. Because we're going to see an astonishing declaration of promise that Christ gave to those who would f have found themselves to have persevered, who have examined themselves and determined that yes, I am a true believer. Not because of what I've done, because I've what trusted in what Christ has done, and I believe His word to be true. It's a very profound promise that He makes this week. And for any who may have or will continue to examine themselves and, and find that you have trusted in false truths and that you've placed your source of freedom in something that isn't truly liberating. Your religion. Your works. That this same astonishing promise delivered by Christ is one that you can take hold on to if conditioned upon your belief. If you will believe, if you will trust and submit yourself, continue in the words of Christ. Now, as we move through this text this morning, verses 48 through 59, we're going to see a pattern, and it's going to be a simple one. This, this isn't really complex. Anybody that could look at this is going to notice, first the Jews say something, then Jesus says something. Then the Jews say something, and Jesus says something. And what the Jews are doing is they are launching personal attacks towards Jesus. They are no longer willing to discuss the claims that Christ made intellectually. They're just going to attack him personally. And in response to that, after each of those attacks, Jesus will provide them with gracious truth. This pattern will repeat itself three times until ultimately the Jews reject Christ and the truth that he is presenting. So first, let's just get right into it, because I spent a lot of time making announcements. Let's look at the first personal attack in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So, in response to Jesus telling them that they're children of the devil, remember? That's what he revealed to them last week. And that they are not of God, the Jews 
immaturely stoop down to what we recognize as elementary school grade uh, name calling. They use a racial slur here. They don't deal with the matter at hand. They, they aren't discussing whether or not something is true. Now they're just saying, well, I'm going to attack you, Jesus, and you're a Samaritan. Now, for those of us who have been here and have studied John chapter 4, you know a little bit of the background behind why that would be what they would consider a racial slur. The, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and considered by the Jews as no Jew. They had nothing to do with them. And if you remember, when Jesus sat down at the well with that woman in Samaria, that was a big deal. And we saw how she was shocked that this Jewish man would ask her for a drink. And John would explain to us in chapter 4, the reason she was shocked was because, in his words, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The author, John, points out that it said that they had to, they had to go through Samaria. If you remember, we talked about, no, they didn't. Because, in fact, Jews would avoid Samaria because it was a, an unclean place filled with unclean, detestable people. But for the purposes of what John is trying to communicate, yes, they did. Because he's trying to show Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, so that any who would believe in him would find eternal life. And so, yes, according to the purposes of God, they had to go through Samaria. Because Jesus had that divine appointment with that woman at the well, where he revealed himself to her. And then through her, she went and shared this message, and she did it in her in her own tactic where she said, hey, I think I may have found the Messiah. It could not be him. Why don't you men come check it out? And those men came, and it says many were saved there. But to the Jew, calling somebody a Samaritan was a racial attack, slurring that individual. They may have also been referring to rumors of Mary's pregnancy. I know we kind of talked about that last week. Whenever, you know, they, they talk, start talking about Jesus possibly being born illegitimately, they say, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality because they had already stooped to that point to attack him personally. It was one of the rumors going around that maybe Mary and a Roman guard, a Roman guard had impregnated her, and that's where Jesus was, but they, they covered it up. Joseph helped her cover it up. It's possible there so that in that case, yes, she would be half Jew, half Gentile, Samaritan. But they didn't just attack him with that racial slur. They also said he was crazy. Said that he was possessed by a demon. Again, stooping themselves to that immature level of childhood. I couldn't, I was laughing as I was typing this yesterday. And Natalie looked over and it's like, what are you laughing about? I was like, they basically say, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> That's what they did here. He's saying, you're children of the devil. And they say, nah, you are. Are we not right in saying that you are possessed by a demon? If there was ever a time for Jesus to just leave people in the hardening of their hearts, this would have been that time. Because he has revealed truth after truth after truth, and they have rejected it, tried to justify themselves through their religion, through their works, and all these other areas that might give them freedom. And now they say, you know what, forget it, we're going to attack you personally. This would have been the time for Jesus to walk away. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them 
gracious truth, and here is where he delivers that profound, astonishing promise. Look in verses 49 through 51. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. As Peter described in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't return insult for insult. Instead, he graciously responded with truth. You know, he didn't even address the, the racial issue. The, re the reference to him being a Samaritan. Because that would not have been helpful. You know, our pride might have gotten in the way there. And then, uh, who knows what we might have done in this situation? Because normally, if you ever pay attention, if you ever witnessed a debate, a lot of times what will happen is, first you start off the intellectually, and you're going back and forth, and you're lobbying truth, and you're like, no, I believe this is true, well, I see this, and this is true. And then once one is defeated, and they can't argue against truth anymore, then they go to the next level, which is emotional. And that's when they start attacking personally. And that's what's happened here. And a lot of times, if you've seen that, then it starts going back and forth, not, no, no longer intellectually, but only personal. So you lob an insult at me, well, I'm going to give you one right back. That's not what Jesus does. He continues to pour gracious truth into them. And so dealing with this Samaritan issue wasn't helpful. Not for what he's trying to accomplish. So instead, he corrects them and says, no, you are not right in saying that I have a demon. Because I don't. But I honor my Father. In whatever Jesus said and did, that was always his pursuit. He was always pursuing to honor his Father, to glorify his Father. And so he continues to submit himself to this persecution. And in this response, we see the gracious humility of Christ extended towards these men as they dishonored the one who is worthy of all glory and all praise with blasphemous accusations. Without destroying this people, which he would have been just in doing so and was within his power, Jesus continued in his humility. The humility that was first expressed in him even coming in the form of man and him even having this conversation with these men at this point. Because that was the Father's plan. So what does he say? I don't seek my own glory. But there will come a day when the one, referring to his Father, will establish that. In fact, he's done that before the foundations of the world. This made me think of Paul's psalm in, in Philippians 2 when he's praising the humility and supremacy of Christ. After Paul tells the church to humble themselves and consider the interest of others, he says, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pause there for a moment. You see the humility of Christ there. He is not seeking his own glory. He is humbling himself to accomplish the purpose of his Father. Then continue. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So now you see, Jesus didn't seek his own glory. His Father is. His Father has given him the name that is above all names, so that at his name every knee would bow. And then you see at the very end, what happens there to the the glory of God the Father. We're going to get into that later on in John's gospel because there's this mutual, it's like a, a cyclical glorification that's going on where the Father seeks the glory of the Son and in return the Father is glorified as the Son glorifies the Father. And that's a lot of glorification going on there. But I've, I've given you the definition before, but to glorify something or someone is to reveal its essence, its character, its attributes, who or what they are. And so when the Father, when the Son comes, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, he is revealing the grace, the forgiveness that is the Father, that is God. He's revealing who he is. Though this Jewish crowd didn't recognize it in their day, Paul would come to see the fullness of the glory of Christ. That glory that was sought out by the Father who gave him the name above all names. In this time where we find ourselves in John's gospel, the Son, Christ, says, I'm not seeking my own glory. But there is one who is. And he's the Father. He is referring to him also as the judge. And so what he's doing there is Jesus definitively drew the line between the Jewish men and God. He warns them that this one who seeks his glory that is on his side is the same God that they once said was theirs earlier on. Remember last week we saw that. They said, we have one God, even the Father. We have one Father, even God. So Jesus is telling them, you might want to reconsider the dishonor that you're casting my way. And then he declares that incredible promise He starts it off with truly, truly, so you know something big's coming. I guess I should have, when I made the announcement about the possible relocation, I should have said truly, truly, so you would have keyed in to know that something big is about to be announced. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what we saw last week is the one who keeps the word, who abides in his word, submits to it, not just reads it and hears it, but it says, I'm going to be obedient to that. That is the true disciple. So what Jesus is saying here is the true disciple will never see death. That is profound. And I think it's something that we as the church We say it all the time, that we have everlasting life, we have eternal life, but I don't know 
if we understand the implications of that. So we're going to go there later, but just begin thinking about what, what does that mean? What does he mean by saying that the believer will never see, or as the Jews interpret it later on, taste death? You will never experience it. People die every day. Even believers. So what is he intending to communicate here? I thought it would be helpful for us, not, to, not for me to give you an explanation or a commentary, but for us to explore the words of Jesus in the rest of John's gospel to let him explain himself. For those of you who went through Bible study methods, that we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I'm going to give you three passages in John's gospel. And I'm going to do my best because I'm going to go through them and then I'm going to refer back to all three of them. But I'm going to do my best to stress the parts that are relevant to our discussion this morning. First, in John eleven twenty five through 26, after Jesus' friend Lazarus has passed away, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, right there, true disciple, true believer, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's difficult. Though he die, he shall never die. That's what he just said. Let's go to John 5, 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That is, life without end. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The believer has eternal life that does not end. The believer has passed from death to eternal life. And then in John 6, 48 through 51, Jesus declared of himself, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So, does the believer die? Yes and no. Using Lazarus as the example, Jesus said that whoever believes, though he die, he shall never die. There is physical death. Our physical bodies are dying. Those of us who are getting older in age, you're starting to recognize that. When things start hurting for no reason at all, that is death coming for us. Physical death. But Jesus was referring to something greater than physical death. Though we die physically, those of us who have believed never die spiritually. Because we have passed from the natural state of spiritual death that we inherited from the fall of Adam. And now we are passed to eternal, unending life found in Christ, the second Adam. Romans 5. We have eaten of the bread of life. 
so we will not die and we will live forever. Simply, we as believers have been given eternal life. Our current physical bodies pass away, but we will live eternally alongside Christ, who, by the way, is in physical form, his glorified physical body. That's going to come one day. I don't know what that is. Don't, I mean, I don't know what that looks like. I know Jesus had scars in his hands that I don't know if you're going to have a scar that you had since you were a child. I have no idea. That's fun to talk about and try to guess, but that's not the important issue here. The important issue is that we as believers will not taste death. There is no death in sight. We will live forever. It is simple to explain. Those are simple words coming out of my mouth. But it's incredibly profound to believe. This is a life-altering truth that should change our perspective for our daily lives. It is so simple that I feel that the church struggles to accept the implications that it presents. We'll get to those later. But before we do, let's go to personal attack number two. Jesus gives them gracious truth. Do they, how do they respond? The Jews said to him, starting in verse 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus' statement that it would be possible for someone not to die speaking physically, they're thinking physically here, was convincing evidence for them that their assumption about him was right. He's crazy. He's possessed by a demon. They pointed out that Abraham died. All the prophets died. And they were all men of God. So how can Jesus possibly say that anyone who keeps his word would never taste death? They can't Rise above the physical. You remember we talked about that. You go back to John chapter 4 when the disciples were there. And they're like, Rabbi, eat. They come back. He's talked to the Samaritan woman. The disciples come in, and they've gone and gotten him food. And they, Jesus is hungry. He was sitting at the well because he was thirsty, waiting on this woman to come. And the disciples said, Rabbi, eat. They don't even ask, hey, what were you doing talking to that Samaritan woman? They wondered it, but they never talked to him about it. And Jesus says, Lift your eyes. Stop worrying about the physical food because there's a harvest coming. And they lift up their eyes and they can see the men because the woman has gone to town and they're now coming to him. And he's saying, get ready because the harvest is here. This is the same thing. These Jewish men can't rise above the physical. They're only focused on, what do you mean we're not going to taste death? Abraham died. What are you talking about? All the prophets died. These were men of God. Then they challenge Jesus by saying, who do you think you are? And then he responds once more graciously with truth. Verses 54 through 56, he says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. 
but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus uses that same tactic where he says, oh, look, I'm not pursuing my own glory, but the father is. And then he says, this is the father who you said was your God. And as he continued, he graciously revealed the truth to them that they were liars. That's grace, okay? He's graciously revealing the truth to them that you're liars when you say that Yahweh is your God. You don't know him. He's telling them that they're not true disciples, that they're not true believers, and that the promise that he just gave, that declaration that the believer would never see death, did not apply to them in that moment. We pointed out last week, he's not doing this to condemn them. He's pointing out to them that they're already condemned. He came not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. John three seventeen. And then he draws a clear line between them and Abraham. He said, you know, you keep bringing up your father Abraham. Well, Abraham saw the day of Christ, and he rejoiced in it. He looked forward to it. He was glad. And yet you're experiencing it right now. And you're persecuting the Son of God. This, of course, led to another personal attack. He gives them gracious truth, and they go back and say, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Boy, you are nuts. How could you have seen Abraham? He's 30, between 30 and 33. We don't really know somewhere in that range. But he, he's been in his ministry. He started at 30. He's going to die at 33. So he's in that range. You're not even 50. And you, how, how do you know what Abraham did? And then Jesus gives them the most profound and clearest truth of all in this whole conversation. We've been going along in John 8, and this is it. He gets to the end. This is the climax of this conversation. This is why John recorded this conversation. Because it's here that he reveals his deity. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus communicated that he was God in the clearest way possible that this Jewish audience would have understood. If you've been following along with our reading this week, it's been really cool because we got to see that. We were in Exodus 3, it was like Wednesday, Thursday, somewhere around there, and we got to see this reference come up. It's coming from Exodus 3, when God responded to the groaning of Israel, who was held captive by Egypt, by using Moses to deliver them. And when Moses goes to God, he says, okay, well, when I go to them, who am I to say sent me? God responds, Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that is the tetragram, that is Yahweh, that is the name of God that they would never say. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's pointing to them that he's divine. That fits the purpose of John's gospel, doesn't it? Now you understand why John included this. We, we've been able to glean a lot from this chapter, but it, it all goes here. I am writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. That's why John wrote this. That's why he included this whole conversation in here. This isn't to bash the Jews. Oh, he wants us to see Christ as the Son of God who came in the form of man so that we would see his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. John 1.14 Instead of believing this to be true, however, the crowd of Jews did not abide in the words of Jesus. They didn't submit to them, which revealed that they were truly false disciples. And they rejected the truth. In verse 59, it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to kill him. Truth after truth after truth. And they ultimately rejected it. And Jesus avoids it, once again, as we've seen already, because his hour has not yet come. It will come, but it's not now. So what are the implications of this? They are life-changing. We as believers have passed from death to eternal life. That passage that Lydia read for us this morning it gives us the implication of trusting in that atoning work of, of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 only, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll only focus on those two. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. As believers in Christ, we are not only delivered from death, but we've been delivered from the fear of death. If it's not out there, we don't have to be afraid of it. I wonder how many of us who have trusted in Christ still operate out of that fear. This was the question that was constantly on my mind this week. Why do I do the things that I do? Or why do I avoid certain things? And I had to examine my behavior and say, what's motivating me for that? And what I kept finding, in my heart, there was undercurrents of this fear. The fear of death. What I found and what I think you'll find is that we spend most of our lives still operating out of something that doesn't have any power over us. It has so invaded our lives that we don't even realize it most of the time. It affects our choices about what we do with our time, our money, our possessions. It, it affects how we view our families, our friends. 
it limits the risks that we take for the sake of the gospel. I think if you would spend some time thinking about it, you might start seeing some of the same things I did. Thrill seekers behave irrationally because life is short. Got to make the most of it now. Those of us who are more conservative don't take risks because they might be dangerous, might be humiliating, and we would have to live in that humiliation. Or we may determine that the lasting possible consequences for that action far outweigh the possible gain. Think about it in terms of gospel ministry. Have you ever been burdened to have a conversation with a friend or a family member to share the gospel with them? Or have you ever been burdened for a specific people group or just unreached peoples in general and you had this burden to go bring the gospel to them so that they might hear it and that they might believe because without hearing they will not believe? Did you do it? And if you didn't, why not? And I think what you'll find, the answer to that question, there's going to be underneath this underlying fear of death. Maybe it was too dangerous. Maybe I was going to have to leave my family behind. Well, if you're a believer and your family's a believer, guess what? Good news. You'll both live forever. Eternal life. You will not taste death and neither will they. There are some things that are temporary. And so for us as the church, evangelism, missions, that's temporary. There is a certain time when the kingdom will be complete. There will be no need for evangelism. There will be no need for mission, global mission, because the kingdom will be done. It will be established. When that last one responds to the call of God, that's it. But... Why don't we go? Or why don't we support people who want to go? Why don't we have that conversation with our neighbor or our parent or our child? This is a big question. That is going to take a lot of time and examination and allowing the Holy Spirit to kind of to kind of expose these things in our hearts, but what do we do out of fear of death? Or what don't we do out of fear of death? How does the fear of death enslave us still, even though we've been delivered from it? This is going to be very practical, or it could be a deep theological issue. So this is my challenge to all of us, is that we continue to examine ourselves both today, tomorrow, this week, and for the rest of our lives Allowing the Holy Spirit to expose those areas of our hearts where this fear reigns and then seek to eradicate it by focusing on the truth. Where Christ said, if you believe, you will not taste death. You will not see it. What risks might we take for the cause of Christ when we fully embrace that truth? We know that we can trust that because I am is the one that communicated that. That's the source of that truth. It's not just me, some random guy standing on the street or standing in front of a church that's just saying, hey, guess what, you'll never die. But it came from the words of Christ, the eternal Son of God. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And I'm telling you, 
you will not see death. Let us live eternally in the spirit of Paul's words to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's already been won. Death does not rule over us, and so the fear of death has no power. But it's kind of like last week where we've been delivered from sin, yet we continue to put ourselves back into that bondage, we do the same thing. This fear of death does not exist. We've been delivered. But how many of us still put ourselves right back into that trap? If you are a believer in Christ, I hope that you can fully embrace and celebrate the fact that this has no power over you. And I'm not saying be irrational. I'm not saying go jump off a cliff because, hey, I won't see death. But what I am saying is consider what, what God might be calling you to do. Where his spirit might be leading you. And I hope that when you see that, you don't start weighing the dangers. And, oh, and then recognize, hopefully, that that fear of death might be starting to poke its head. You're like, okay, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the truth. I won't, I won't see death. So how does that liberate me to, to operate? To any who have not believed in those words... The words of Christ where he says, I am the atoning work, I am the Savior that you need, and you need to surrender your life to me as Lord. If you believe that, then you are truly a disciple. If you have, up until this point, rejected the truth of Scripture that declares that all of us are sinners and in need of a Savior, I hope you also examine your hearts. Determine how the fear of death controls your life. And when you find it, I want you to know that Christ has conquered death. And since he's conquered death, it is possible for that fear to not have control over you. But you must believe. You must trust in the truth that Christ presents, that he is the Savior. And it is only through him that you will have eternal life. And it is only through having eternal life that that fear doesn't have power over you.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth presented to us in your word. We thank you for the liberating power of Christ. Father, we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of your scripture. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would, would search our hearts and expose where this fear of death still exists. And that we would let go of it.